Well, good morning. I welcome you here this morning. If you're new, it's great to have you here. Thank you for joining us live stream. I'm going to have you turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1. I will pray at the end of the service, all right? We had quite an uh, exciting moment here today with five candidates. I'm really delighted in seeing what God's doing in the life of our church family. Some of you might recognize the name Victor Frankel. Victor Frankel was actually a Jewish uh, psychiatrist who survived the Holocaust, was in a, in a concentration camp. And later after the war, he wrote a very famous book entitled Man's Search for Meaning. And he relates how powerful hope really is in sustaining our lives. He talks in this book about a fellow prisoner uh, who said to uh, Dr. Frankel, he said, you know, I had a dream the other night and a voice spoke into my dream and said I could wish for something and I would receive the answer. And he said, do you know what I asked for? That I would like to know when the war would be over for me. You know what I mean? I want to know when we, when our camp will be liberated and our suffering come to an end. Well, what did the dream voice tell you? Dr. Frankel asked. Furtively, he whispered to me, March 30th. When he told me about his dream, he was still full of hope, but as he, the promised day drew nearer, the war news which reached our camp made it appear very unlikely that we would be free on that promised day. On March 29th, he suddenly became ill. On March 30th, he became delirious and lost consciousness. On March 31st, he was dead, and to all outward appearances, he had died of typhus. <clears throat> but those who know how close the connection is between the state of mind of a man and the state of immunity of his body will understand the sudden loss of hope can have a deadly effect. Any attempt to restore a man's inner strength had first to succeed in showing him some future goal. What was he really basically saying? That when you and I lose hope, we lose the, the will to live. And so hope is such a powerful commodity and we're living in a time when we need to walk in hope. And I believe the Bible gives us, as we looked last week in the first chapter of 1 Peter, God gives us a living hope, a true hope, a hope that will extend even beyond this life. I believe hope is what carries us forward. And so we have to take a look at what we're placing our hope in. Peter, now writing to believers that were scattered abroad, desired to encourage them with the reality of the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. And see, the majority of believers in the first century had this deep sense of what we would call the imminent return of Jesus. In other words, Jesus had died, he had risen from the dead, and he had said he was coming back, and people were anticipating that. You can imagine longing, looking forward to that moment. And then time began to expand. And how many recognize when your hope is deferred, when it's taking a long time for it to become reality, your hope begins to fade? That's what happens. And that was exactly what was happening to these believers. And so Peter's writing to reinvigorate that hope that they had. But also he noticed that their spiritual fervor was diminishing. And so he was pointing them to that future inheritance that we have in heaven. It's an inheritance not only that the first century believer has, but believers for every century, including our own. But the bigger question then became, so how then do we live in the present moment when we're waiting? How many think that might be an important question? Because we're in the now. And so the question is, how should you and I handle this moment of hoping and yet not realizing? How do we live in that moment? And so Peter reminds us 
here and instructs us of what we ought to be and what we ought to do. And he calls out this beautiful message of God's love and grace as a challenge to us to live exactly as God himself would live if he were walking on the planet. And we know that what, what he was like because we see it in the person of Jesus Christ. So what is it like to be like God or godly? What is it like to be holy? And so Peter uh, challenges us here in these chapter, verse 1 of 1 Peter, verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, now he's going to quote from the book of Leviticus here, be holy because, as God says, I am holy. In other words, God's saying, be like me. Be like what I'm like. And he's talking now about his moral character. So what does it actually mean to be holy? You know, there's been a lot of confusion about this term. But I think even maybe a greater question that we could ask ourselves is, okay, if I understand it, and as we're going to hear today what holiness really means, how in the world can I be holy in a world that's so unholy? How can I be, you know, different than the majority of people and not feel like, you know what, uh, this is an unhealthy way to live, but rather discovering that this may be the most beneficial and healthy way to live. So I'm going to take a look at three things that you and I need to learn about this thing called holiness. And I think it's probably one of the most misunderstood of all of God's attributes. As a matter of fact, church in the past has had all kinds of weird ideas about what holiness is. So we're going to take a look at uh, these three things to consider. And First of all, what does it really mean to be holy? The idea of holiness is that we're set apart for God's purpose. The lifestyle of a believer should actually reflect a different value system. That you and I are not in step with what the culture is doing. Not in the sense that, you know, we're... Um, being weird or something. No, but we're understanding the values that God has and the desire that God has for us as his children and the kind of life that he expects of us that will be actually what I consider to be the healthiest way to live. As a matter of fact, I think there are too many people today who have weird ideas about what holiness truly means. Now, it's been true throughout the church age that that's been that's been. The reality, you know, I, I can remember back, this is before my time, but back in the 1950s, you know, holiness was preached a lot in the church. And there was a standard set, but it was very external. I mean, you, you can form some outside things. You know, we didn't do this or we did that. And so it was kind of like a pharisaical religion, very legalistic, very outward. But yet people could be a thousand miles apart from God in their, in their heart of hearts. And so on the outside they were conforming, but on the inside they were still living in a rebellious state towards God. Now Jesus is going to teach us in his high priestly prayer that we're not to necessarily leave society, you know, that became a very predominant thought in the early church. Listen to how he prays in John 17, verse 15. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world. Now that word world there means uh, a society that doesn't know God. But that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as not, I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now that word sanctify is the same Greek word 
as holy. It means, it's the Greek word hagios, which means someone who is purposes is set apart for God. He's a holy person. He's set apart. He's being sanctified. Um, but in the early church, they believed that the only way to be holy or to be sanctified was to be leaving the world. Now remember Jesus said, you're not of the world, but Jesus calls us to be in the world. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I want you to be salt and light. But the early church misunderstood, and a lot of times, especially in the Mediterranean world, and that very deserty climate, southern Israel, Egypt, a lot of believers went out and lived an isolated life in the desert, became known as the desert fathers. They lived away from people. And you know, you know, neighbors or friends or people would bring them food from time to time so they could survive out there. But they lived an isolated life in the wilderness. I don't believe that's what Jesus Jesus is calling us to do. He's not calling us to leave society. He's not calling us to withdraw from the world in which we're living in in that sense. He's telling us something far different than that. As a matter of fact, that idea eventually developed into what we call monastic living because eventually some of these isolated people came out and they became little communes and, and then they developed rules for living together and so they lived in this monastic life so they could live this quote-unquote holy life. And the church developed this pretty intensely all the way through the Middle Ages. And then you had, you know, this whole idea of self-denial or, you know, this ascetic concept where you would, you know, treat yourself poorly. You'd, you know, fast often. You'd beat your physical body. Uh, I remember listening to a series of lectures on the bubonic plague, you know. People thought this was a judgment against God. So then they, uh, they, would, they would have people coming through their towns uh, beating on themselves. They would self-flagellate, you know, they take, you know, terrible uh, shards of glass and stuff and start striking their skin so they'd start bleeding, you know, like somehow this punishment on themselves would be meritorious before God. That was all part of a wrong understanding of what it means to be a holy person. Wrong idea. So what does Jesus really have in mind? What does the Bible really teach us about it? Well, the Apostle Paul felt like self-denial certainly did not suppress our sin-filled nature. As a matter of fact, in the book of Colossians, he writes this, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? Now notice the rules. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. What is this? This is a negation. This is a, a denial, an abstaining from anything of any sort of pleasure in life. Paul is refuting that. He doesn't believe that that's the right way to actually become a, uh, a follower of Christ. These rules which have to do with things that perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. He's saying, this is coming out of people's minds. This is not from God. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They look good. It looks, they look holy. They look like this person's, you know, denying themselves. With their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. So what Paul is basically saying is simply this, that you and I can mortify our physical body, but we can still be guilty of sinning in our spirit. You know what I mean? Because the sins of the spirit are things like, you know, we can be critical, we can be prideful, we can be judgmental, we can be condemning. See, you can be beating your physical body up, but it's not dealing with the inner stuff inside of you because that's still part of our sin nature. And so, you know, 
being harsh on our physical body isn't going to deal with that inner stuff. That's what Paul is teaching us here in the book of Colossians. So that's not what holiness is about. That's what I call weird ideas of holiness. So the word holy is taken, as I've already said, from that same Greek word, hagios, we get the word saint or sanctify or holy, and they imply this being set apart for God's purpose. That's why we called our Bibles Holy Bible. It belongs to God. Actually, if you're a child of God, you're a holy person because you belong to God. As a matter of fact, Paul reminds the Corinthians, he says, you have been bought with a price. Your body says, glorify God in your bodies. You have a holy body because God's living inside of you. You're the temple of God. Isn't that amazing? You've been set apart for God. That's a very powerful thought. Uh, I love what Karen Jobs, how she defies holiness. She says, to be holy means that Christians must conform their thinking and behavior to God's character. Okay? The character of God as revealed through the covenant God made with the people he himself had chosen for himself. And in the Old Testament, that was the Israelites. In the New Testament, that's believers in Jesus Christ. The moral aspect of that covenant was summarized in what we would commonly call the Ten Commandments. So if we want to know what God is about, God says, this is what I'm about. These are the moral standards that I have. This is my moral standard. And he's expecting you and I to reflect the character and the moral standard of God. So everybody follow what holiness is. Now we're reflecting the nature of God. We're going to reflect his character. Now let me give you an exa example of how we could apply this in our lives. Let's just take the first commandment for an example. First commandment is basically the, you shall have no other God before you but God, right? Right? Isn't that beautiful? Like put God above everything else. But you know sometimes as Christians, we don't even realize that we commit idolatry that we put another God above God. You say, well, what God do we put above God? Many times we put ourselves above God. And that becomes idolatrous. We make ourselves a God. You say, how do we do that, Pastor? Whenever you and I go, I want to do my will versus God's will. I want to serve my agenda rather than God's agenda. Then who becomes God? We do. And that's a form of idolatry. So we're not reflecting the moral nature of God at that point. We're not behaving as a holy person. What's God's call? It says, be holy even as I am holy. So God is calling us to himself in this manner. Now, uh, so living in a right relationship to God demands obedience to the commands of God. Now, how many know when Israel lived according to God's law, God also created some very unique, distinctive things about his law in the Old Testament. They had dietary laws, remember that? They even had laws where they worship on a special day. They were circumcised. They did some things outwardly to show the nations around them that they distinctly belonged to God himself. They were God's unique, and actually we could say peculiar or different people, but they were uniquely God's. What happens when they went into the promised land? What happened then? God was warning them, don't take on the worship of these other gods. Don't take on the value system of these other gods. And when you read the Old Testament, you find over and over again, what were they guilty of? The very thing. And so what they would do is they'd continue to worship God, but they also created a syncretistic understanding. So they began to worship the gods of the people around them. They began to embrace the value system of the people around them. That's syncretism. They're blending. It's a blending of ideas. And that's one of the great difficulties that we have today as Christians, that you and I are unique and distinct from the culture. 
that you and I are not syncretic in our viewpoint. We're not just blending and taking ideas in and then you know, reformulating it so now we're no longer distinctly other than and different than the society in which we're living in. It's a call to holiness. God is calling us to be uniquely his. Now, I'm gonna tell you how powerful holiness really is and how exciting it when you really understand the nature of it. Joseph Aldridge wrote a book years ago called Lifestyle Evangelism. In it, he describes holiness as, the, as what the character of the church is all about. Holiness is primarily a statement about the moral condition of a person. He goes on to say, but it does have visible, observable dimensions. One synonym for holiness is wholeness. I like this. We all appreciate wholesome, balanced people. Isn't that true? Yeah, we all do. I think, I, I like that, you know. And he goes on, the term portrayed one who is functioning, wholeness, a whole person is someone who's, who's functioning according to God's divine intention, who's fulfilling God's intended purpose and is being restored to that purpose. So, you know, what's happening to most people is people become fragmented. People become duplistic. They, they break apart. You see, what happens when you and I become one with God? We're going to find that God unites us and integrates us so that we become whole. That's what he's talking about here. Goes on here to say, the man who is holy will be growing in his ability to act and function as a whole, integrated, balanced person. Such growth is, observable, is an observable miracle because no person can reverse the progressive disintegration, separation, and isolation which sin produces. These are all the, the qualities that happen when we commit sin. Genuine holiness is not a static quality. Translated into life and action, it manifests itself through such qualities as integrity, justice, righteousness, and freedom from guilt. In summary, a truly holy person is a wholesome person. Now, I love that. I remember reading, I just went, this is so powerful. I mean, how many here would like to say, I want to be whole. I want to be balanced. I want to fulfill God's intention for my life. That's the purpose why we're on the planet. Paul Cedar says, no wonder we're intimidated by the command of our Lord to be holy. There's only one who is truly holy, and that's God himself. If we were to be holy, we would have to be like God. Well, by the way, that's not what God wants us to be. He wants us to be like him. He wants us to be godly. He wants us to be righteous, just like he's righteous. You know, not to be unrighteous or ungodly, which is the negation of, you know, God or the negation of doing the right thing. As we are controlled increasingly by God, the Holy Spirit, the holiness of his presence and power will shine from our lives. If we try to live holy lives, in our own strength, I'm gonna just fill that in, we're always gonna falter and fail. That's just the way it works. If we follow Jesus as Lord of our lives and allow God's Holy Spirit to live in and through us, we now become channels of that kind of life, that holy life that God wants to see manifested through us. But let me move on to the second thing we need to consider regarding holiness, and that's how we really develop it. I mean, so, okay, I understand what holiness is now. It's the moral character of God being lived out through the power of the Spirit. Okay, so how do I develop that in my life? Well, Peter gives us some very practical instructions for us how to live a wholesome, holy life. In verse 13, he says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. First of all, he tells us to prepare our minds for action. Now, it's interesting that the Greek word there is literally mean gird up the loins of your mind. 
And actually the King James says it that way. Wayne Gruden says, this is an almost unintelligible phrase for modern readers, unfamiliar with the ancient Oriental custom of gathering up one's long robes and pulling them between their legs and wrapping and tying them around the waist so as to prepare for running, fast walking, or under other strenuous activities. Actually, the Romans did that even when they went to war. They have to do the same thing before they went into battle. Otherwise, they'd be tripping over their garments. So basically, he's, he's basically calling us here to this idea of having um, to be living a self-controlled and sober life. Now, we could talk about you know, not living a drunk, in a drunken condition, or being intoxicated by chemicals, but I think it's more than that. I think he's challenging us not to be intoxicated by worldly pleasures. You know, a lot of times we get so caught up with the good life that we totally miss the best life. You know, we get so caught up with all the things that this world has to offer that pretty soon we're negating and neglecting the life that God's calling us to, which is a developed life getting to know him, growing in our relationship with him. And, you know, I'm going to just say one of the disguised things that COVID has brought into our lives, it's brought great restriction. How many say that's true? It's kind of curtailed travel. It's curtailed a lot of things in our lives. And I'm questioning in my mind as I'm praying, I'm wondering, God, are you allowing this so that we can reprioritize our lives? That we can maybe shift away from that intoxication of living life you know, the earthly life as if it's the only life. And, you know, then start to focus our thoughts and realize there's more to life than just that. And so God is trying to move us to more of a spiritually mindedness in our lives and maybe begin to pursue God at a different level and maybe even begin to do things like studying the Bible. Because I think a lot of times in the past we've had hobbies that were extremely time-consuming or we've had work that demanded our time and energy and it's moved us away from really getting to know God. And now God's saying, I'm going to slow you down a little bit and move you so that you you can actually cultivate this life after God, this life to know God, this life to develop and grow in, our, in, a, in a godly sort of manner. And then it says here, uh, we're to set our hope fully on the grace that, was, that is to be revealed when Christ comes. And um, how many know that anything less than putting our hope in Christ will be disappointing? That's the way it works. And I think a lot of people are disappointed because they put their hope in a lot of things and then they're not realized and they're, they're always disappointed with that. But I think our attitude is really critical. God wants us to have a healthy attitude. Attitude determines the quality of our lives. It's really true. As a believer, we can live a wholesome lifestyle and we can develop a right mental attitude. Do you realize the great battle in life is in our minds? And so when we have the wrong thoughts, the Bible says we're to take captive those thoughts and make them obedient to Christ. He then tells us, you know, instead of focusing on the wrong desires, try to focus on the right things. Paul says in Philippians, consider those things that are right, pure, and lovely. Focus on those things. And so you have to train your mind, by the way. And a lot of us have an undisciplined mind. We're not training it. And we need to actually train our minds just like we train our bodies or we, you know, we train for maybe an athletic competition or we train as a musician or whatever we're training for. But we also need to learn how to train our minds. We have to discipline ourselves to focus. You know, a lot of people are not focused today. They're undisciplined. They're not trained. And so their minds run rampant on them and pretty soon they just, their lives are out of control because where your mind is, that's going to actually help enhance your life or diminish your life. Then there's, uh, 
just this whole idea of, of sin. Now, recently I've been listening to a series of lectures in the morning. They're on a DVD series, and it's on systematic theology. I know most of you go, that doesn't sound very exciting, Pastor, but it really is interesting. And, uh, you know, I've, 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 I've studied most of my life, and I'm listening to these lectures, and a lot of what I'm hearing I've heard other places, you know, so I'm, you know, I'm not hearing this, all, not all new to me, but there are some things that are a little, I've never heard it said this way before. There's different nuancing. And I was so struck when I was listening to a lecture on original sin. It was really fascinating. How can you get excited about that? But uh, you, you can learn things. And so one of the things that really hit me, and it was from R.C. Sproul. He's a systematic theologian. He said, sin is foremost an estrangement and an alienation in a relationship to God. You know, that's a very powerful statement. What's he saying? He says that you and I, because of sin, are, we're, we're, we're disconnected from God. There's a disconnection. We're alienated. We're cut off from. And then he said that salvation is primarily a reconciliation to God. I don't know if we think of it that way. But then he started saying some other things that really grabbed my attention. He said this. He explained how we're not only a stranger experiencing alienation with God, but we also experience it with one another. And isn't that true that a lot of relationships, there's a lot of brokenness in relationships and estrangement and people are not having healthy relationships. We see it in marriages, we see it in friendships, we see it in families, people are fighting and bickering and they're not getting along. How many can see that? And at the heart of it, what, what he's arguing is that's the nature of sin. That's what sin does. That's the fruit of sin in our lives. It breaks up relationships. That's pretty profound. But then the next part really hit me with impact. And he said, but he said, at the core of it is that we're estranged and alienated from ourselves. Now that was very profound to me. I had never really meditated, considered it, or thought about that. But I want you to think about that for a moment. What he's saying is, we are disconnected from ourselves. There's a lack of connectedness. We ourselves are broken. We ourselves are not in a healthy relationship with ourselves. And so he went on to say, this means that we have a fundamental problem with our attitude towards ourselves. And you know what that attitude is? Is that we hate ourselves. So many people hate themselves. It's really a very damaging kind of a thing. So how many know that if you hate yourself, it's very difficult to love somebody else? Because you see, Jesus said to love your neighbor as you love yourself. But if you don't love yourself, how can you love your neighbor? And so people today are, you know, we can talk about love, but if you're broken on the inside, it's really difficult. And you're, you know, you have an unhealthy sense of who you are and you don't have never experienced this reconciliation with God where you now are receiving a healing in your innermost being so that you can now move past your regrets and guilt and your shame and brokenness and self-hatred and self-loathing so that you can get to the place where you've really received God's forgiveness and you're, and you're receiving his amazing unconditional love where healing and restoration is happening on the inside of you. It's restoring your mind and there's a wellness coming to you so that now you can begin to relate to other people in a brand new and exciting way. How many think that's powerful? You see, that's the essence of what the good news is all about. And, you know, our culture does not see that. And so they're obviously going to treat these problems in a totally different way. But I'm going to argue that what they're dealing with are the fruit 
of the thing and not the root of the thing. And so when you and I get down to the roots of something, we're dealing at at its very core issue. That's why having a right relationship with God is so profoundly powerful that you, and it brings healing into your life. You know, when I was a brand new Christian, I remember I was 19 years old or 21 years old and I made a commitment to Christ, started coming to church. And every single Sunday, it felt like the pastor was talking right to me. I was just unbelievable. I just could not understand how he knew me and could speak right into my situation. It was actually the God, the Holy Spirit speaking through the pastor. And every week, you know, I was so broken. I, I could feel the tears coming down my cheeks. It just seemed like God was speaking in my innermost being. There was so much hurt that needed to be healed in my life. But by the grace of God, he kept working in my soul for a year and a half, just began to repair the brokenness in my life. And it's been a journey. I think this is a journey we're all on, folks. It's not like you and I are 100%. We got it all together. No, but it's a journey that God brings about in our lives and this amazing restoration and healing that happens as we get to know God. Well, how many say, that was a pretty good lecture that you could pull that stuff out of that one little statement, but it just came alive inside my spirit. And that's why I love studying the scriptures, right? It's fun. Let me move on. I just put down some possible love others. We don't even love ourselves. Okay, number three, it's what God requires. God requires holiness. Be holy. How many go, that's not optional. He says, be holy as I'm holy. What is he saying? When I, I titled the sermon, when I grew up, I want to be like you, Lord. When I grow up, I want to be holy. It's really what I'm saying because holy means I'm becoming like God. I'm becoming God-like. I'm not becoming God. I'm becoming God-like. I'm becoming godly. I'm becoming holy. I'm becoming whole. Wow. This is such an exciting sermon. How, who knew that preaching on holiness would be so encouraging and so exciting? But it is. I love it. But how do we get there? Because you know what the problem is in life? A lot of times we know the right thing, but we're not motivated to do the right thing. How many know motivation is very important? We have a lot of information as believers, but we lack a little application. So I want to focus in on how we need to get motivated. Peter gives us three motivations. The first motivation has to do with our unique relationship with God. And it flows out of this healthy relationship with God. He says in the biblical world, the characteristic quality associated with a father was the care for his children. I love that. I mean, when you read the Old Testament, God says, I'm a, I'm a compassionate God. I'm a forgiving God. I'm a long-suffering God. I, I, you know, all these beautiful characteristics. I believe that God is the most forgiving, loving, caring, compassionate person that exists in the universe. There's nobody greater than him. He is a father that really loves his kids. And when you and I come into a relationship with him, there's no one that's going to love you more than God does. And I can prove that to you because he laid down his life for us in the person of Christ. You know what the corresponding characteristic of children was their obedience to their father. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. What is he saying to us? Look, you used to just let your evil desires control your life. But now that you're my child, I've given you a new nature. You can say no to sin and yes to me. Can I tell you what happens? You're either, listen, Paul in the book of Romans says, if you sin, you become a slave to sin. And if you do what's right, you become a slave to righteousness. So you have a choice. Whose slave are you going to be? 
I'm going to be a slave of doing the right thing or I'm going to be a slave of doing the wrong thing. We have a choice. Christians have a choice. Isn't that beautiful? I'm saying do the right thing. Don't conform to the evil desire. Give in to the right thing. Do the right thing. As a matter of fact, uh, we've already looked at these verses earlier about holiness here. Uh, Look at the, let's skip something here. Oh, here it is. F.B. Meyer says, obedience is not holiness, but holiness is the possession of the soul by God. But holiness always leads to obedience. Isn't that great? So obedience doesn't bring holiness. Obedience is the fruit of true holiness. What's that telling you? God wants to change us from the inside out. So when God changes your heart, the end result is you do the right thing. If God doesn't change our heart, we just keep doing the wrong thing. So we have to have a heart change. That's what I'm getting at here. Uh, do you know Paul described us before we were Christians as disobedient children? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2 says it. You were once disobedient children. But he says now, he says, you and I are his obedient children. That's the characteristic of a child of God. The second motivation flowing out of our, uh, of, is having a proper understanding of the nature of our heavenly father. I think one reason why people struggle with obedience is they have an improper view of who God is. When you don't understand who God is and you have an improper view, you you don't behave the same way. Listen to what Peter says. Since you call on a father who judges every person's work or life impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. I love this verse. Think about it. What is he saying? He says, God is always fair. He always treats us fairly. Isn't that beautiful? He, you know what? When you and I do the right thing, sometimes people don't respect that or reward it, but God always does. He's always fair. You know, the Bible says if you honor God, he'll honor you. If you disregard God, he'll just let you suffer. He'll let you have the consequences of your bad behavior. He says you'll do that. Not only that, it says live as foreigners. In other words, this isn't really our ultimate destination. We're passing through, folks. We do the best we can, we do as much as we can, we do as much good as we can, but we're just passing through. It says, but we're to live in reverent fear. Probably the greatest problem I see in the culture today, in the church culture, is we lack a reverent fear of God. What does that mean, Pastor? It means I'm not walking in the fear of the Lord. You see, when you really fear God, the healthy kind of fear, you have such a reverence and a respect for God, you say to yourself, how in the world can I do this great evil against you? Because I know how much of a great God you are and a great father. Why would I do that? I don't want to disrespect you, Lord. And so we walk with this knowledge that we're living to honor God. We're living to show respect to him. We don't just disregard him and just do our own thing. And I think a lot of Christians today don't walk with that understanding, this high respect for God to do what's right in his sight and please him. The third motivation is understanding the nature of God's redemptive work on our behalf. Listen to what he says in verse 18. For you know that it's not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. You know in the Old Testament, the redemption came via money. This is really weird to me, but it's true. Listen to what it says in Exodus. The rich are not to give more than half a shekel and the poor not to give less when you make the offering to the Lord your God to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money 
for the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting and it will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord making atonement for your life. What's Peter saying? Listen, you can't buy your way into heaven. You know, that's what, he's, that's what he's negating here. And how many know that when people did this, this is an external thing. I just give my half a shekel, then I'm okay with God. Well, how many know if that's all you have to do, people are gonna start living pretty poorly. And that's exactly what started happening. But listen, the psalmist recognized the problem, and this is what he says in his writing. No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay. What he's arguing is that, listen, if you think silver and gold is going to get you into heaven, forget it. He said there's no ransom that you can pay that's great enough to redeem your life or buy you into a right relationship with God. So what is, he, what is he all saying here? Well, Howard Marshall says, the former state of the readers was one of bondage. Bondage to a particular way of life inherited from their ancestors. For the Romans, ancestral traditions were praiseworthy, but not so for Peter. Do you know the ancient Romans? You know, how the, you know what, what motivated them to do the right thing? They remembered the great acts of their ancestors. And when they had a funeral, they'd actually bring out the mass. They would actually do kind of a... Uh, a masking of the dead person's face, and then people would, children would carry the mass of their ancestors, and they would try to live up to the honor of living at a high level for the sake of their ancestors. Peter's saying, no, you don't need to do that. That's not what this is about. The way in which Peter frames the thought makes it clear that the reminder is not so much of the redemption itself, but rather of the cost of the redemption. What's he talking about? Christians can easily take their redemption for granted. The way to avoid this attitude is by remembering its infinite cost. What is he saying? How are you and I redeemed? Because of what Christ did for us. He laid down his life for us. You know when we forget that, we, take, we, 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 can, we can be very guilty of being quite superficial. Look at the price God paid so that you and I could have a relationship with him. He died for us. Now, how many in this room, you say, you know, I'm really quick to volunteer. I'd be really happy to give up my life for an enemy. I'd be willing to lay down my life so that an enemy would be spared. Most of you go, good luck. Bye, enemy. Right? I mean, we don't think that way. But listen, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know why we didn't have no thought of God? We were ignorant of God. That's where I was. Christ died for me. And once we understand the price God paid for us, it's so costly he gave his life so you and I could live. That should be a high motivation for us to serve God. But I like what Wayne Gruden says. It's not just that we're delivered from sin. Let me just close it with these thoughts. But it's the blood that cleanses our conscience. How many are glad that your consciences are cleansed from evil? I love that. God forgives us. We gain bold access to God in worship and prayer. Do you know that you and I can actually approach God's very throne of grace boldly? Do you know in the Old Testament, only the high priest could go into that place to talk to God once a year and not without a sacrifice. But the moment you and I as a child of God say, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name, we're right into the very presence of God. We're progressively being cleansed more and more of sin. Do you realize that Jesus not only forgave you of your past sins, he's now forgiving you of your momentary and future sins. That his blood is constantly cleansing us day in and day out. And then finally we're able to uh, conquer the accuser of the brother. And we're able to rescue us out of a sinful way of life. That's power, folks. That's what God has given to us. So holiness then is the character of God that's within us. 
The character can only be developed in our lives as we freely surrender to Christ as Lord. When we take responsibility to prepare our minds, we resolve in our minds to be self-controlled, to live a life of sobriety, living in the hope of God's grace and desiring to please him as an obedient and loving child. Then we will reflect his character. Our motivation stems from our intimate and unique relationship with our Father as we keep in mind his incredible love which was demonstrated for us at Calvary. Holiness is actually the character of our Heavenly Father that we're allowing to develop inside of our lives when we say yes to him and not resist him. Because you know, you and I can quench the Holy Spirit. You and I can quench the work of God in our lives by just doing our own thing. So what is of real value? Let me close with this poem. Not how did he die, but how did he live? This is speaking of us. Not what did he gain, but what did he give? These are the merits to measure the worth of a man or a woman as a man or a woman, regardless of birth. Not what was his station or hers in life, but he had a heart, and how did he play, or she play, their God-given part? Is that powerful? Because that's what it comes down to. Let's stand. You know, this morning as I was praying, I came across a text in the book of Judges. This is my own quiet time. And I was really captured by one little phrase. I don't know if if that's what happens when you're reading your Bible. I'm captured by things in my mind. And it said that the the people served God all the lifetime of Joshua. I said, yay, check that box off, good. And all of the elders that outlived Joshua, check that box off. But it said the next generation did not know God because they had not experienced his presence. And immediately my heart went out and I said, Lord, we need to experience your presence. See, I remember when I became a follower of Christ, it was in the 1970s. God's spirit was moving across the land. The Holy Spirit was breaking into all kinds of denominations. People were experiencing a personal encounter with the Holy Spirit that was changing their lives. And yet I've sensed over these last number of 40 plus years, what's happening is that, you know, people are kind of drifting and you can see the culture drifting, but I see the church drifting as well. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I want to pray this morning because really what we really need is a new encounter with God. That's their greatest need. The greatest problem I tried to share with you this morning is our own personal sin and how it breaks us down and how we we are broken on the inside. God wants to heal that. But we need an encounter with God for that to really happen. See, when I, when I became a follower of Christ and I made that decision to say yes to Jesus and received him as my savior, something changed inside of my heart. I, ga- I gained a new heart, a new desire for God. Before then, I had no desire for church, no desire for God. But I was so broken, it led me to this place where I cried out to him to forgive me and to come into my life. And at that moment, something happened. It was a transaction. And all of a sudden, I had a new heart and a new desire to please God. I didn't have that before. And God began to heal that brokenness in my life. And that's my prayer today, that you and I would experience the presence of the living God, that he would draw us to himself, that we would have this amazing encounter with him. So I'm gonna just have you bow your heads this morning, and we're gonna pray. And if that's your cry today, say, you know what? 
I want God to bring wholeness into my life. Maybe you're here today. Inside of you, there's a brokenness that you want to see healed on the inside. Restoring relationships. Is that you today? Just raise your hand. I'm going to pray for you. Some of you, okay, that's beautiful. People are responding. Great. Don't be ashamed. This is not to be ashamed. This is a cry to God. Maybe you're here today, you say, you know, I want God to do a deep work in my life. How many here say, I would love to experience the presence of the living God in my life that would bring about tremendous transformation in my life? Just raise your hand. Just, I, I got my hand. I want to experience God's presence in a greater measure. That's what I've been praying for of late. So, Lord, I just pray today that your spirit would come in a supernatural way that you would break into the broken places of our soul, that that estrangement, that alienation, Lord, that you would begin to heal it, that, Lord, as we call out to you today, that you would change our hearts, that we would experience you, the true and the living God, that it would bring healing in our human relationships. Lord, above all, it would bring a healing in our relationship with you. Father, that there would be a nearness, a closeness, a longing, a desire, a passion, Lord, there would be just so much excitement in our lives because you would become more and more real to us each and every day, Father. I just thank you for that work of grace that you want to pour into our lives. Help us, Lord, to walk in your moral character. Help us to be like you in holiness. Help us to be like you in wholeness. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave today.